ever told you about The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? The Secret Life of Walter Mitty is a short story uh, written by a main man named James Thurber. It's a story of, of a man who goes to town with his wife on a Sunday afternoon or some lazy day like that. They get in the car and they're driving into town and he begins to imagine things. And as he's driving along, he begins to imagine himself as the, 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 uh, a pilot in a, in a dogfight, in a World War II dogfight of, of um, you know, up, uh, uh, warfare between the planes, flying around and shooting each other. And he kind of snaps out of it when his wife gets scared of his driving. And she goes to the beauty salon to get her hair done and he's outside and sees a man smoking a cigarette and he begins to imagine himself as a, a secret agent, a government secret agent who's doing valiant things. And the whole story is all about his imaginations of, of whether he's a soldier or a pilot or a secret agent. He's imagining himself doing these great things when the truth about him is he's just a man driving his wife to get her hair done and go grocery shopping. So he's picturing himself as something other than what he really is. He prefers to imagine things about himself and ignore what is true. I'm afraid that that's how we are, or at least how we're tempted to be, a lot of times as Christians. Do you remember what's true about you from last week? That in Christ you have been united with him? That you have died with him, chapter 3, verse 3? Chapter 2, verse 12, you have been buried with him. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have been raised up with him. And in chapter 4, you live, I mean, verse 4, you live with him. In Christ, you are united with him in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his victory over death. What he has obtained for you in his perfect life becomes yours in union with Christ. His victory over death and his resurrection becomes yours in your union with Christ. The penalty that he paid for sin becomes yours in your union with Christ. In him, you are forgiven. In him, you have new life. You are a new creation. That's what's true about you. That in him, you will never be any more a child of God than you are at the moment of your salvation. You will never be any more forgiven by God than you are at the moment of your salvation. Your position before God is secure and he looks at you and sees Christ. He sees you sealed with the Holy Spirit. If that's what's true about you, is that how you live? Is that how you live? Or do you imagine yourself as being something different? Do you pretend to be something different from what you really are? It's kind of a reverse Walter Mitty, isn't it? Here you have this idea of Walter Mitty of being this sort of 
mundane person who's imagining great things about himself. When us, as Christians, we are in Christ. We, if that's anything but mundane. And yet we live our lives as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened. So as we seek to put aside the, the sins of the body, remember we looked at that last week, chapter 3, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You also put aside the, the sins of, of the body of Christ, right? Of, of the sins between each other, chapter 3, verse 8. But you also put these aside, anger and wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so now we get to verse 12, where Paul says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, if these things are true about you, if you really are united with Christ, all these wonderful, lofty, incredible things are true about you. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, I would expect him to say they're holy and, I don't know, growing in holiness, right? Our standing before God is we're declared holy, we're declared just, we're declared not, right, not guilty. This is holy and loved. Holy and loved. If these things are true about you, then put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why those things? Why those things? Because those are Christ-like. You're increasingly being conformed to the image of the one to whom you are united. Do you know 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 17 and 18? 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her. For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you are united to Christ, joined with him, his character begins to be worked out in you. So why compassion and kindness and humility, and gentleness, and patience. Because that's how Christ relates to his people. That's how we are to relate to each other as well. Put on a heart of compassion as he was compassionate. Be kind as he was kind. There were times when he wasn't, but I wouldn't describe him going through and 
disrupting the tables of the temple is particularly kind. But think of how he treats his people. The kids who would come to him. It was kind. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, verse 13. You ever been hiking with someone? Well, here's a better example. When I travel, I am a man on a mission. All right? I, when I take a road trip, I don't like to stop. You stop for gas. If you need to use the restroom, you hold it. All right? You stop for gas. Only time you stop. And I have it down as long as I'm ahead of schedule. Right? If you leave at 8 a.m. and it's a 120-mile you know, trip, then as long as you're there by 10, you're okay as long as you're making at least a mile a minute. You can stop as long as you're maybe 15 miles ahead of schedule. And then you get a 15-minute stop. Okay, I'm a man on a mission when it comes to traveling. I have no time for... Daddy, I need to use the bathroom. As long as we continue at 70 miles an hour for another 35 minutes, then we'll have a seven-minute break. I am a man on a mission. don't like to be slowed down when I travel. Unfortunately, that kind of thing can also bleed in to how I lead as a pastor, how I lead my family, a husband and father. If I know where I want to be, I mean, I'm a man on a mission, and we're, we're going we're gonna to go for this, and we're going to go full bore, and we're going to go according to schedule. Don't slow me down. That's not bearing with one another. That's not bearing with one another. Bearing with one another is not getting frustrated when I'm hiking in a park with my kids, and it's a seven-mile hike, and you know, you got to get there and get back. You got to get to the waterfall so we can enjoy the waterfall. What are you stopping looking at these wildflowers for? We're going to a waterfall. It's not bearing with one another. As we travel together, as we, as a body of believers, are seeking to invest the Word of God in each other's lives, as we're traveling toward Christ likeness together, in a sense, it is not helpful to get frustrated that there are some who want to stop and smell the flowers in this particular passage alone. In fact, it is your responsibility to make sure I don't get impatient. That's part of bearing with one another. You know, a man who would only attend the sermon at a church, I wasn't the one preaching, but he would come in late just for the sermon, and he would leave right at the end of the sermon, he wouldn't stay around to talk to people. And the pastor talked to him about it afterwards and, and said, why don't, why don't you come and, and worship for the entirety with, with everybody? He said, yeah, I, I, I like your preaching. It's great. I get a lot out of it. But everything else, you know, not so much. And the Sunday school and the, you know, the, all the small group stuff and the meeting together one-on-one, I, to be honest with you, I'm afraid they're just going to slow me down. And his pastor's response was one that I didn't see coming. He said to him, well, 
did you ever consider that it might be God's plan for you to be here to help speed everybody else up? How we are with each other. For those who want to dawdle, to not give much discipline to our Christian lives, we are encouraged toward greater intentionality by those in our fellowship for whom that is the strength. Those who are very purpose-minded and don't want to stop for anything along the way are tempered a bit by those who want to say, you know, what God has blessed you today. Let's, let's just stop and, and, and write on, on a sheet of paper all the ways God's blessed you. Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. You will not be wronged by another believer in any way that even comes close to how Jesus was wronged by one that he thought was one of his own in some ways. Think of Peter. Peter denied Christ how many times? Three. It must have hurt. I don't know him. And yet on the other end of it, Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to declare his love for him. That's why Paul tells the Corinthian church, look, when, when you have divisions among you, don't don't go... Don't go to an unbelieving authority and sue each other. No. This is hard for some people to hear. It's hard for me to tell myself sometimes. But sometimes we just need to be willing to be taken advantage of. You ever thought about that? Our culture says don't be a doormat. And there's a lot that's true to that. Sometimes you just need to be willing to be that. For the sake of pointing someone to If we're all here insisting on what we see as our rights, Christ won't have preeminence among us. Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on love. Put on love. Well, doesn't, doesn't that just sound all nice and Beyond all of this, just, just, just put on love. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? I mean, he's, he's, the Corinthian church is insisting on, on spiritual gifts and insisting on, well, tell us more about tongues and tell us more about you know, all, these other, all these other gifts. And I think Paul says, look, don't, don't worry about it. God will gift you and equip you to be faithful. Just trust in that. Seek to be faithful and you'll be gifted and equipped. But if you if you must insist on gifts and focusing on gifts, well then, here, take these three. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. That's what he tells the church at Colossae here as well. And he's never been there. Paul never met these people that he's writing this letter to. He says, above all of this, 
on love. But what in the world does that look like? He continues, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Your Bible may say something like the uniting bond of perfectness or something something like that. And originally, I thought what he's saying here is if you, if you all just love each other, then you'll be united as Christians, right? I'm not so sure that's what he's getting at. I think that's in there. I think he's saying if you love each other, then you'll be putting each other first, right? Romans 15, Philippians 2, this whole idea of, of serving each other, considering others as more important than yourselves. That's hard to do if you're not trying to nurture a love. But I think even beyond that, he's talking about our union with Christ. Because we have been united with the Christ who died, was tortured, and died for the spiritual well-being of the person sitting to your left and right. Put on love. It is his love for you which initiated that union with him in the first place. We sang that just a little bit ago, didn't we? If you had not loved me first, I wouldn't refuse you still. It's Christ's love for you which initiated your union with him. How can we do anything but nurture that in our relationship with other believers. The title of this sermon isn't in there, but it's the An Ark for All God's Noah's Part 2. <laughs> you were here last week. That is that Jesus is our vessel in whom we, we, we are rescued from the judgment of God. And how in the world can, can we treat others on that vessel, in that ark, with anything but a Christ-like because he went through the same sacrifice to save them as he did to save you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And then verse 15, which I almost always take out of context, which and I, I think is probably still an okay application, what I do. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The Bible uses that word rule a lot, but it only uses this word for rule one time. Bible scholars have a big fancy word for that when there's a word that's only used once in the Bible. And this is one of those. The particular word that Paul uses here for rule, this is the only place in the entire New Testament that it happens. And it means to arbiter, to kind of serve as a referee. And he uses sports analogies elsewhere, but this is the only time he uses this particular rule. I've watched a lot of baseball in my life. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like what I saw last night, those of you who watched the World Series last night. An incredible display by a Cardinals hitter. But even next to that, to me, what I found frustrating about the game was the pitchers were, were, they were trying to throw the ball right on the outside edge the entire game. And half the time, if the ball was caught in the exact same spot ten times, half the time he called it the ball, half the time it was called a strike. That was very frustrating to me. Be consistent. Be consistent. If it's gonna, if, if that right there is going to be a strike, then every time you throw it there, it's going to be a strike. It's 
kind of analogy that's being shown here. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in your life. Let the peace of Christ tell you the balls and strikes. Let the peace of God tell you what's out of bounds. The Bible is very clear about a lot of stuff, about what's right, what's wrong, about how to treat one another and how not to treat one another. But there's a lot of decisions that we face every single day that the Bible doesn't directly talk. Decisions about jobs. Decisions about money. Decisions about all sorts of stuff. Things that we wish, you know, God, if you just, if you just, I want to be faithful. Just give me a blueprint. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I just want to know what it is. I just want to know what your will in this is. You're confronted with two good decisions. Neither of them is sinful. Which one do you pick? There's all sorts of of advice I could give you on that. There's all sorts of even seeking advice from other believers that you could do. There's um, principles on what would point people most effectively to Christ. What is the desire of your heart? There's all sorts of things. But in the end, kind of what it boils down to, if you don't have peace about it, Grow where you're planted. But sometimes a decision comes along and you have peace about it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do you know Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If I can find it. Therefore, Paul tells the Romans, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's huge. I don't know why, but that truth lately has settled on my heart in a new way. To look at all the issues we have in life, of, of you know, money and Plumbing, which, don't get me started. All the problems that we think we have in life, and what has been declared to be true about us is that we have peace with God through Christ. Let that peace rule in your hearts. Let that peace rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul says. Literally, it's to show yourselves thankful. In some ways, it's not enough just to be thankful that you have peace with God. The implications of your peace with God and for your relationships with other believers is impacted on whether you show your gratefulness. I am grateful to God for the peace that I have, for what he has done for me So how in the world can I be prideful towards you? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, well, I think we can all agree. Who thinks that we should let the word of God richly dwell in our lives? Nobody's going to oppose that. How do you do that? Hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, applying it. That's the hard work. Be saturated by the word of God. Saturated by the word of God. I don't know how my kids do it, but if I let them out in the backyard for five minutes, they will come inside with all of their clothes dirty. Just an absolute mess. I can tell where they've been and what they've been into and what they've been up to based on what they have on them. In fact, I know them well enough. If I hear the door close coming in through a particular door in our house, I know to tell them, go wash your feet before you walk on the carpet. true about us? When you spend time in the Word, does it it stick to you? When others look at you, are they able to say, to see you and think, you've been saturated by the Word. Let it dwell in you richly. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, meditate it, apply it. And then with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, that's investing the word in each other's lives, which we're trying to equip you to do with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What we do when we gather together, we sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yes, we do sing to God. But we're not just a bunch of individuals gathered together on our own little individual worship experiences when we gather together as believers. That what we're doing when we gather together, as much as we're singing to God, we're singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Hearing you sing of the greatness of God in your life teaches me and points me to Christ. We don't have as much of a problem with this here, but I've been in churches where it is really hard to get people to come to church during deer season, hunting season. I've pastored churches and communities where the first day of hunting season is a school holiday. You get it off. And part of me likes that because people feel guilty enough about missing church to go hunting that they then bring me deer meat, which is great. But every now and then, they would, people would develop a habit. Well, I'm going to miss the first two weeks. I'm going to go hunting. And then two becomes three, and three becomes four. And the habit becomes neglecting of the gathering of ourselves together. And I go and I talk to them. Do you realize the value of gathering with other believers, and Hebrews 10, 25, and all of that? And the reaction that I would sometimes get is, well, I can worship God just as well with my Bible in my deer stand. Really? Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Singing with the deer before you shoot it? 
There is a corporate nature about worship. Yes, we are saved individually. We worship individually. You should have quiet times. You should have loud times of worship between just you and He. But you can't do it to the neglect of worship with other believers because that's a part of how we work out our salvation. And whatever you do, verse 17, whatever you do in word, so what you say to each other, or indeed what you do for each other, to each other, whatever you say, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? How do you do something in a name? In the Bible, the idea of a name relates to an identity. You used to give people names that meant things. I love the name Nathaniel. It means gift of God. I don't much care for my name. It means small. William, though, means protector, so I'm the little protector. Name relates to identity. The name of God refers to his immenseness. Exodus 3.14, what name does he give himself? I am. When you talk about the name of God, you treat it as holy because it relates to a holy God. To do something in the name of Christ is to do it in accord with his character. Whatever you say, whatever you do, let it reflect well on the Christ to whom you are united. Do you see that in the text? I realize this morning's sermon is in many ways just a running commentary, but I've got nothing really to add to what Paul says here. He says, because of the Christ to whom you are united, all these wonderful things are true about you. Well, then live like it. Realize that the being united to the Christ who is holy and righteous and just for whom and through whom all things are created, who lived the perfect life, died, was buried, rose again. All of that becomes yours in your union with him. And if that's true about you, then be Christ-like in your relationships. So he goes from here and now he starts talking about different ways to walk in wisdom, and human, using various examples of relationships as, as examples of reciprocal but differing responses of submission. Right In Ephesians, Paul says that we're to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, what that submission looks like is different depending on the relationship. He talks about husbands and wives and children and fathers and um, servants and masters. Walk in wisdom. Very parallel passage over in Ephesians. So what does this mean for us? Well, are the one another's just a way for of us to try and, and, and get people to be nice to each other? No. It's a way for you to see increasingly examples before your eyes of the glories of the 
Christ who has saved you. How you relate to other believers reflects on the Christ to whom you are united. So the only encouragement I can leave you with is reflect on Christ. Reflect on Christ. I would not want you to leave here thinking, okay, I've got I've got to work harder at being better. I've got to work harder at serving people. I've got to work harder at forgiving. I have to work harder at putting on love. I have to work harder at compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. No, that's not the attitude I want you to leave with. If you leave here just set stead, intent on just trying to be better, then you've missed the point of what Christ has done for you. These things become a part of your character. Your efforts toward them bear fruit only insofar as it is Christ working his life out in you. Now, that doesn't mean you sit back and be lazy and become Christ-like. But no matter how hard you work at being kind and compassionate and gracious and forgiving, it's not going to be, it's a Walter Mitty discipleship at that point. If you have a new identity in Christ, then live like it. But don't just put up a false facade. Don't just pretend to be someone that you are not, because then you're only compounding the problem. You with me on that?